uh, this week, so you just don't know what might happen on a Sunday morning, what, what I might say or what I might not say, so uh, hold on. Joel 1, uh, we're going to look at verse 13 to 20. Uh, last Sunday, we started this series through the book of Joel, and Joel was uh, uh, warning of calamity and, and calling people to consider what had occurred uh, in their living memory and realized that they needed to take account of themselves and prepare for an even greater calamity to come. And uh, that meant turning away from the luxuries of the world which had distracted them from a pursuit of God above all, uh, to consider repairing their, their broken uh, personal relationships and humble themselves and to prepare themselves to really worship God. And uh, so I'm going to pick up in verse 13 where he instructs them really to, to put on mourning clothing, to, to weep and to uh, consider their humanity uh, before God. Verse 13 says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in. Pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The siege shrivels under the clods. Storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan and herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures and the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field, even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Now rituals can feel very inauthentic to us as modern people. We, we, we really appreciate uh, spontaneity, authenticity, and, and following prescribed uh, liturgy or even ritual seems very inauthentic to us. Um, but yet, we really need at times to, to allow ritual to be a, a help to us, particularly in times of grieving and mourning. Uh, in fact, uh, during times of loss of loved ones, we genuinely appreciate the well-worn traditions of grieving. Uh, there are some variations in how uh, this traditional pattern is done, but if you think about a funeral ritual, there are steps that are designed to help people with the process of grieving. There is a pre-funeral activity. Uh, sometimes it's called a wake uh, and which the, the body lays more in a private area that the family comes to spend time with, with each other around the lost loved one. And then there's a visitation where more of the, 
the community comes to, to gather with the family to pay their respects. And then we move towards a funeral service in which there's eulogies and there's scriptures that are read and there's a, a scripture lesson that's given through a sermon and prayers. And all these are designed to help walk a grieving person towards a better place. And then there is a procession in which a body is taken out of uh, a meeting hall or place, and it's carried by pallbearers to a, a hearse, and then there is a driving and a procession all the way to the place where there'll be internment. And when you're there, there is committal, there's prayers, there's readings, there's uh, goodbyes. <coughs> and then afterwards, everyone comes back or moves to a place where there's a time of eating. And all of these things are designed to walk a person through the channels of grief to a place where they might be able to eat again. All of this is designed to assist us in the process of grieving. Now, grieving is a process that, if resisted, can cause emotional complication. Ancient cultures knew this very well. They understood that people needed that time to grieve. And mourning itself, the weeping process, is perhaps foreign to us as a ritual, but the ancient cultures understood, and they took it to, to a, such a high degree, it almost became an art form. And it involved, involved the entire person, body, mind, and soul was brought to a place in which weeping was generated. And the heathen went, actually went to great lengths to do this. Now, the Jews were not allowed or permitted to cut themselves, but there were heathen practices of cutting themselves for the dead that was strictly prohibited. But, but they did do things that culturally everyone did. There was the tearing of the clothes. There might be the shaving of their heads. There might be putting loose dirt upon oneself to express externally what was going on internally within. Other kinds of expressions involved the, uh, the shaving of the beard and of beating one's chest and of striking their, their thigh to, 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 to emphasize how hurt they were and even removing footwear and walking around barefoot to, to express how downtrodden they, are, they were. People would remove their comfortable clothing, their soft clothing, and they would put on like grain bag cloths, sackcloth we call it, or burlap, you know. People decorate with burlap, but people would decorate themselves with burlap, which is rough and scrapey and very, very uncomfortable. Wailing. Wailing was probably the most common expression of grief in the ancient Near East, and it was also customary even to hire mourners to come and just wail out loud before a home that was mourning a loss. In Jesus' day, <coughs> excuse me, in Jesus' day, the oral traditions prescribed that even the poorest in the land of Israel were required to hire not less than two flutes 
and at least one mourning woman. That was pretty, pretty common. It was prescribed. And it was designed, actually, to involve the entire person and also to call the whole community to come together and to grieve with the grieving to bring them to a place of comfort. It was to show that they were not alone in their grief. And we think of the story of Job, in which Job had friends who came and grieved with him over his losses. In a best-case scenario, a mourner would receive comfort from this experience of being with other people, and in a positive result, they would gradually come to a place where they could eat again, uh, go about the normal processes of life. And I've provided kind of an extensive background to mourning here because as 21st century Americans, we don't, we don't really think about these things. In fact, we try to put them into the back of our minds. We'd, we'd rather really not think about them at all. And so it's important for us to hear these as we come to a text like Joel because otherwise we will miss the implications of what Joel is calling a community to do and we will lose the capacity to read the Scriptures with understanding and apply them to our own hearts and lives. Calamity, as we heard last Sunday through the early stages of Joel, is a gracious gift that's designed to turn our hearts away from the false narratives of this world to the truth that we desperately need. And it's designed also to provide a place in which to grieve our mortality. And we ought to properly grieve our mortality so that we're able to find true comfort outside of the material world. We find true comfort in God Himself. God graciously gives the Comforter to those who properly grieve their own mortality. God graciously gives the Comforter. When people are grieving, they want comfort from other people. But God gives something even greater. He gives Himself as the great Comforter that we desperately need. And so as we walk through this this morning, I want us to see how that mourning was designed to involve the entire person and the whole community. And both of these are necessary in order to respond properly to, the, to those sovereignly appointed calamities that come into our lives. It's important for us to be able to see this. We resist this process then we're not going to learn from the sovereignly wise disposed calamities that are placed within our lives. And in this text, Joel is calling people to first give themselves wholeheartedly to corporate worship. There is a repetition because a in verse 13 to 16, as I was reading through, you may not have caught it the first pass, 
but there is a repetition that occurs in which while he's calling people to put on sackcloth and wail and weep, he's also calling them to gather at the house of your God. Uh, At the end of verse 13, uh, these are withheld from the house of your God. Verse 14, gather the elders, the inhabitants of the land, to the house of the Lord your your God. In verse 16, there is this recognition that there is joy and gladness being cut off from the house of our God. The house of God was the place where people gathered together to reflect upon the events that occurred in their world and call out to the Lord corporately, together with others, not just them alone by themselves with them and their Bible. They were they were to come together with others and to worship wholeheartedly uh, before God. And it's appropriate, and I think it's very I think it's easy to see that this is something that's very natural. You know, in our living memory, we have seen both national and local moments in which people came together to lament, to worship God. To lament is to worship God. After the tragic events of 9-11, New York churches were full of people. They came properly together to process what had just occurred, and they worshipped through lament towards God. That's on a national level. Now, on a local level, just recently this fall, there was a young man named Samson in the local, uh, local uh, Honesdale football team who passed away very suddenly. The instantaneous response of everyone that was knowing Samson was to gather together and to grieve. They came together um, uh, at, a, at, a little, at the Honesdale Baptist Church and they spent time grieving together. There was great loss and great affection that was expressed in those moments. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we tend often to associate worship with that which is positive. We don't always recognize that corporate worship at times takes upon itself the character of lament and incorporation of sackcloth, which is to us very negative. We are a very positive-driven society. We, we, we don't like marketing that is done in a negative way. It, we, we feel uncomfortable about that. And there is this kind of allergic reaction to that which, that, that when we are lamenting that we would kind of want to isolate ourselves rather than to come together with others to lament. And it may be that sometimes our worship services are styled largely as positive expressions that don't allow people at times to express grief uh, that they may be feeling on their own. But there is something in our society that that affects us, that causes us to, to resist the reality of of expressing our internal in a consistent way externally. 
Uh, what do I mean by this? I, I mean that there is a tendency, and we looked at this last Sunday, there is a tendency that we allow the love of luxuries, that which is positive, to so captivate our hearts that we are, we are conflicted and we are not able to actually be honest when we come to a corporate setting. We're not actually honest about how we're expressing our, from the heart out loud towards God. In fact, the love of luxury in our world is opposed to a wholehearted kind of worship. Uh, Joel uses metaphors in the early part of this book, uh, verse 5. Um, if you look there just to reflect back to what Joel had said in context, he had said, you know, awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine. And he criticized the, a people who loved luxury. They loved the sweetness and they were captivated and compromised by, say, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. A culture back in that day was captivated and I would say that they were compromised. Compromise is a very, very strong word, but I think it fits. Because people become compromised, they become corrupted by the lure of wealth and luxury. And we see this in our own political world. You see people who are corrupted, they take bribes because they love the luxury more than the obligation to be judicious and fair. And so when we choose to prioritize an appetite within our souls for the luxurious, we can do so at the expense of worshiping God corporately with wholeness of heart. It may be that when we enter into a public setting, we enter in not seeking first the kingdom of God. We are overwhelmed with the luxuries and the attractions of the world that when we come into a corporate setting, we, we can't process what's going on because we're there's in our hearts a competition with what's going on outside of these walls. We become overwhelmed with the stimulations of the world that tease us with sweet things that when we come into the congregation, we're affected by it. Worldliness can affect our public worship where we have an inconsistency within the heart, with what's going on externally. What do I mean by this? A heart that is burdened by calamity is not inconsistent when it comes into a public worship service. It's overwhelmed and is not caring about anything. It only wants Jesus. A heart that's not burdened by calamity and distracted by the worldliness and the, the desires for beautiful and tasty things comes into an auditorium and doesn't accept what people offer around them as worship. A heart that is broken is hungry. 
And when people gather to lament, they're primarily grateful that they're with other people. It's because they're looking for comfort. Their souls have been so abused by the world that when they come into a congregation, they don't care. They just want Jesus. They want to hear the truth. They're desperate. A luxurious mindset is looking in the wrong direction. Matthew 6.23 says that if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And our world that so prioritizes the, the luxurious experiences around us can distract us from a wholehearted corporate worship. We get distracted and we, 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 we start to pick and we're not really aware that we're there with others who need Jesus. There was once a young man who grew up on a little island in the Bay of Fundy in Canada. Off the coast of Maine, there was only one church on that little island. Population of maybe 200 people. He went off to see the world and he went off to Cedarville College and when he returned, he found that he couldn't go to public worship because he had learned what real, quality, authentic worship is all about. And if our eye is looking in two different directions, then we're not going to be worshiping God with the integrity of the heart. Wholehearted worship requires that we come to the assembly with need in our heart. I need Jesus, and I need His truth more than anything else. We live in a very luxurious society that tempts us with alternative experiences, and we want those things more at times when we come to the body. Wholehearted worship requires internal and external consistency. You can't lament in a tuxedo and a glass of wine in your hand. If your heart is overcome with sorrow, it requires that our external clothing fits the mood of our hearts and, and vice versa. This goes in the opposite direction. Our mood also affects our, our, in, uh, our, our clothing can also affect our mood. They can cause us to, to uh, become overwhelmed. With, and it's important for us to realize that here, there has to be a consistency. Now, I'm using clothing as a metaphor. I'm not literally talking about clothing here this morning. In verse 13 to 14, he says, Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail. O ministers at the altar, go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from your, from your God, from the house of your God. He's, he's saying, look, the priests are putting on sackcloth. That's, that signals a very serious change of atmosphere. Because the priests, when they went through town, they were dressed in such a, a, a 
a I would say a beautiful distinction from those that were around them. When people walked through town with priestly garbs on, it, it was very noticing, noticeable. Uh, they were almost all white. They stood out. And by putting on sackcloth, it, it signaled a change of atmosphere so that the external might agree with the internal in a solemn assembly. And I take from this not the need necessarily to change you know, the kinds of things that you wear. That's not the main point here. But what it is, it's illustrative of what true repentance looks like. The alignment of our heart with our actions. John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, By this we may know that we are in Him, and whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. That's talking about agreement between what we say we believe and how we act and live out the Christian life. There has to be agreement there between the two. That's what real true repentance looks like by, by making a consistency of internal and external. Now, it's very possible to put on the, all the, the right clothing, but really not have the, tri the right heart. That's not good either. And so Joel here is just talking about the consistency of life that's needed to demonstrate the trueness of the sorrow for the kinds of things that have led to calamity, the need for repentance. Now, passing the night in discomfort here, notice it says here, go in, he's talking about these priests, it says, they're putting on the sackcloth, but go in and then pass the night in sackcloth. <laughs> pass the night. I don't know about you, but I don't want to wear sackcloth to bed. And it's talking about a whole life commitment here. That we don't just simply return to the old ways of living after the public time is over. So we've done the public time. And it's the difference between the natural comfort that we might want when we gather. So back when 9-11 happened, we had people gather for comfort. That's good. And there were a lot of bold claims about wanting to follow Jesus after those, that experience. And the natural comfort that was received in that setting, though, was not, in many cases, of a supernatural kind. There was not the comfort that can't, comes from the Holy Spirit that enlivens the heart and gives one the hope to keep persevering. There was a natural comfort that was received in the assembly without the necessary changes that come by the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we want wholehearted worship, it requires an internal and external consistency that cannot be manufactured. It has to be given supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. There is a total involvement that's being called to. Notice uh, 
in verse uh, 14, there's this call to concentrate, co- consecrate a fast. There is a call for solemn assembly. But notice that it says gathering the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. He directs this to be not just like for the lower classes. This is for everyone. And is a significant statement about the need and consistency required of those who are in leadership. It cannot be half-hearted. It has to be total. And this call required the participation of the elders and also, if I can put it in a New Testament perspective, of the deacons. It requires the assembly of all the land. And if there is going to be a demonstration of true repentance, it also has to include and involve the leadership. There needs to be a wholehearted commitment and setting of a positive example for the congregation at large. Wholeheartedness, though, does not mean perfection. What it does mean is honesty and growth and change over time. When a person comes to faith, they they don't change immediately. But a wholehearted person changes gradually over time. They become sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Wholehearted worship is required. When people grieve, everything changes. They become united internally with the external. And wholehearted worship also becomes very realistic about the day of the Lord. Uh, Verse uh, 15 to 16, we read these words. He says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? There is a realism there about the day of the Lord. Calamity, which is observable around us when we see calamity occur, we need to take note that there is a similarity there potentially to the great day of judgment which is still yet to come. So whenever we see things that occur within our world like locusts or we see war or we see pestilence or we see famines, we see disinformation campaigns and we recognize, hey, these things are outside of the normal. These are at times seem orchestrated as if by the hand of God, we ought to then stop and consider that if this is true in our day, how much greater will that be in the day to come? There is a need for realism when we see these events transpire. Verse 15, it says, For the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it comes. As a younger man growing up in the church, I would often hear older folks talk about calamity as the sign of the times. And at times, pardon the pun, at times it was very confusing to me as a youngster because I also knew that the 
term sign of the time is associated with end time views and events that are, may transpire in the future. And that is true, but either way a person might look at how the Lord will return, whether they would see the church passing through or that we would be taken away and spared the great tribulation as we teach doctrinally here, that we are taken away from that time of Jacob's trouble, it does not mean that the church will be spared from tribulation altogether. But nevertheless, every ripple that we see in some way is a sign of the times. In the sense that each one speaks and tells us of the potential and the reality, actually, of something greater to come. That is a sign to be taken from our time. And when calamity comes from the Almighty, it is the warning. It reminds us that we are mortal. It calls us to repent. It calls us to believe the Gospel. Also, while I was a kid, I, I remember traveling with my parents. We would visit different churches and tell them about our desire to uh, start churches in Canada. And that was a part of the process. We would go visit these churches. And I remember traveling through West Virginia, other parts south, and I would see these billboards on the side of the road with an open Bible and Scripture verse on it that says, Prepare to meet thy God. Maybe you've seen, you ever see those around? I mean, I, I don't know if they're around now, but really, they were like a signpost. They were trying to, but unfortunately, with those kinds of signposts, signposts we, we roll through them, right? It's like the stop sign that you see, but then after a while, oh, there was a stop sign there? You see... Joel is doing a job here of communicating warning that when calamity occurs, it is an opportunity to consider our mortality. It is an opportunity to consider that we are sinners and we are in desperate need of salvation. And yet God gives to all who call upon His name the gift of true comfort. When we go through Grieving processes, we want the comfort of being together with others. That's appropriate. But God gives us something even greater. When we grieve our mortality, He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us to continue on with hope. And so, there is a call in this to, to, to give ourselves wholeheartedly to coming together to worship the King of Kings and to properly consider everything that's going on around us and to live honestly from the heart before Him. But there is also a call in these verses to give ourselves wholeheartedly to private prayer, to prayer. And I see this in verses 17 to 20, and I I'm not going to go as detailed into all of these verses, but just show you the, the significance of the metaphor that's being used. Nature is used as a metaphor. 
in verse, uh, verse uh, 17, he says, The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate, the granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. There is a shriveling of all the agriculture. And this creates a problem for beasts, animals that need the food. And what do they do? Because they're deprived, they groan. They groan. They are perplexed. And then you have the human response in verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. Here's someone else who is groaning, who is calling upon the Lord because of the devastation that has occurred around him. And in verse 20, it comes back to this agricultural image again and says that the, even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks have dried up. They need the water, they need the food, and they're panting, they, they, they're groaning, and they're expressing the internal. They're giving themselves wholeheartedly and calling out for help. You know, I say this as a metaphor because we're not an agricultural society as much as we used to be. I know we still get produce uh, from different locations, but we're not as tied to the land as we used to. And so we can think about this in terms of a lack of signed contracts. You used to be able to get contracts like easy, easy gravy, but now it's kind of drying up. Or the networking that you used to enjoy is not quite as productive to be able to get me uh, into places where I used to go. And in all these things, the picture of drying up, what do you do when you're in a situation where this is occurring in your life? You give yourself wholeheartedly and you call out to the Lord while you're groaning and grieving. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, wrote a really wonderful little book on prayer. And he defined prayer in this way, and I'm not going to I'm not going to exegete every point in this, but I want you to hear what he said prayer is. He said that prayer is, first of all, it is sincere. It is sincere. It is sensible. It is affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. For such things as God has promised were according to the Word, for the good of the church, with submission and faith to the will of God. Each of those points, each of those sentences, those little phrases are so full of meaning, so full, carefully chosen to help us understand what prayer entails. And I just want to focus on two of the words, because I think they fit the context here very well. It's that word sincerity, and also the assistance of the Holy Spirit. Why is sincerity essential for prayer to have any meaningful entrance into God's ears? Because a sincere person has no pretense. It is what it is. They are who they are. They have nothing to hide. They are weak 
people in desperate need. And there is a simplicity that, that comes about because of that. And the simplicity is such the simplicity is such that the heart just simply cannot go in any other direction. And the simplicity is there to demonstrate a great need, but there is the, the moving and work of the Holy Spirit that can be there to assist us. The Holy Spirit is designed to give us the words that we want to say when we don't know what to say. And there is a dependency, a sincerity, and the movement of the Holy Spirit within our hearts to communicate as we ought to communicate. You can hear Romans 8 in that reflection. There is within the Scriptures very difficult things that we are called to do. And I want us to consider that we have been called to follow Christ and there are some very challenging things that we've been called to do that ought to cause us to mourn, to consider that we are not able to do these things on our own. Very close to the very heart of the Gospel is the matter of forgiving as we have been forgiven. At the heart of the Lord's Prayer, we have been called to forgive. And if we forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. That is a heavy, heavy calamity. For anyone who professes the name of Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that if we are not able to forgive as we have been forgiven, we may get to the pearly gates and have to be told, depart from me, for I never knew you. The Scriptures are perfectly clear that this is a calamity that we cannot walk away from. It's hard and it feels almost impossible to our minds to be able to forgive. And it is impossible. It is impossible. James, which we read in our early part of our service, calls us to mourn our inability as sinners to do what we ought to do, to mourn our pride, to mourn our anger, to mourn our bitterness. And if we don't mourn those, it will be impossible because the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us to forgive as we ought to forgive will be empty. It won't be there. We have been called to follow Jesus. And when we mourn over our inability, we can have every expectation that our Heavenly Father will give us the comfort of the Holy Spirit 
to cause us to do what we ought to do, to follow Him as we have been called. We have been called to grieve our mortality, our humanity. But we are so often caught by the luxuries of the world that we forget who we really are. We are unable to follow Christ as He would have us to follow Him. We desperately need the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is a wholeheartedness that's required internally of us to follow Christ. Joel is calling us to respond, not just externally, just to go through the motions of coming to a corporate worship service, but to align our hearts with what is coming out of our mouths. God calls us to respond to Him with wholeheartedness. And yet, He promises to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 2, after making these strong statements to those who are grieving calamity, there is the promise of the Holy Spirit that will be with them and not forsake them. We can give thanks for our Heavenly Father who gives us these rich gifts. Let's pray.